and he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, good morning. Welcome to this first Friday episode of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson, and my sister, Marianne Harold from WQPH, is the co-host. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for being there. And Kyle, are you there? Yes, I'm here. You are here. So for those of you who are not familiar with Kyle Clement and might be tuning into WSFI for the first time, Kyle is loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church and been involved in the curriculum consultation in formation of priests and the laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. He's a co-founder of an organization called the Society of the Sorrowful Mother and more recently the Libra Cristo organization. So Kyle, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, maybe just talk a little bit about your work. Well, I think that um, would be happy to, and, and just in a point of clarification, I think I probably made a mistake when I uh, submitted. I am not a founder of the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother. I was uh, have been a member of that society since it was established by Father Ripperger, who is the founder. Um, it's a religious order. <clears throat> that is, uh, the charism is, it's a semi-contemplative society of exorcist priest and I assist in their secondary charism which is instruction uh, of priest in the uh, in the discipline and art if you will <clears throat> of exorcism which is the apex of, of Catholic liberation and so I think that um, thank you for the opportunity to, to have that bit of clarification uh, Father Ripperger and I did found uh, Liber Cristo, which is a um, an outreach or a, uh, an ancillary uh, organization that exists as an instructional um, ministry for traditional Catholic spiritual warfare, as well as the, the disciplines and protocols of liberation. Um, that's kind of the flyover. You can find out more about Liber Cristo at www.librecristo.org. Um, and Kyle, looking at this, you did not submit it incorrectly. I read it incorrectly. So there you go. But thank you for being so gracious as always. Well, it, uh, clarity and, and precision uh, counts for, for much in this world. And, and uh, sadly, uh, we, it's hard to find. So thank you very much. <laughs> so Kyle, what are we going to talk about today? I think that, that uh, according to um, some of your listener responses, and we're very appreciative for those, please continue to tell us those subjects that you would like to hear about, those subjects that are on your mind, specifically with regard to Catholic liberation. And so the topic that's come forward today, and I think it's most opportune, is the, con the, the topic of purgatory. Um, and so if we talk about that from a sense, uh, from a a strictly Catholic sense, I think that we have to, um, like many topics within the church, we have to return to Catholic norms in our discussion. Um, and so hopefully that's what we will do today. I encourage you, if you have questions, uh, contact uh, Angela or Marianne and, and make those questions known. I'll try to answer those toward the end or address them toward yes. the end of the 
the program. And Kyle, the way they can do that is if they want to text my cell phone, 847-331-6994, 847-331-6994. Text my cell phone or email me at Angela at WSFIRadio.org. Okay, Kyle, thank you. Excellent. So one of the one of the hot topics or topics that is in much discussion, and, and I want to mention why it is so opportune for us to be discussing this today, is we are in the octave. We are in the octave dedicated to the holy souls. And so traditionally, uh, Catholicism celebrated the major feasts of the church with an octave or an eight-day celebration. And we're within that. Um, we lose so much uh, modernly uh, of the efficacy of prayer, the power of prayer, and the, the communion which is and should be between the church purgative, the church militant, and the church triumphant. And so you look at, you listen to those <clears throat> terms, those descriptive terms for the three churches. The, the Catholic Church, this is defeated doctrine. What do I mean by that? This is bona fide, defined, dogmatic doctrine of the church. And so this is not speculation. We have a tendency in deference, especially uh, after the 1960s, um, we have a tendency to give weight and opinion to non-Catholic statements or statements that are against Catholic norms and elevate them to some type of equality. And so what has happened when we do that is that over a period of years, then we start to, to have Protestant creep, if you will, into Catholic thought, Catholic discussion. And so we start to use Protestant or Protestant definitions or speculation and respond to it. And so what I like to, to try to address on this is an analogy all apologetics in my observation should be dealt with in this way. And that is the Catholic faith is an impregnable castle. It's this huge, uh, beautiful edifice castle that is constructed around the pillars of the sacraments and elements of the faith. These are our stones. These are our bulwarks. These are our towers. These are our fortifications, which will withstand all assault. And within that edifice within that construction within the catholic church we are we we have the fullness of truth and so we uh individual catholics can picture ourselves at the top of a parapet the top of a rampart the top of a fortified position in this castle fully armored the armor of our faith the armor of god fully armored um polished through use and we stand with the sword of truth, and a naked man appears below with a stick outside the castle and says, come down and fight me. And we say, okay. And we take off our armor and we leave the castle. And now we find ourselves outside of our faith, outside of doctrine, no armor, and he has a stick. This naked man is modernism, relativism, Protestantism, all of the isms that take us away from true Catholic faith. And so your, your safety, your protection, your, your bulwark uh, against the snares and temptations of the devil as well as the errors of man 
is the fullness of the Catholic faith. So if you look at it that way, then it's better for us to say to the naked man, clean up, come inside, I'll get you some armor. I'll help you armor up, but you've got to come inside. And it's not going to be a fight. It's going to be a conversion. You, you, you are welcome in here. Lay your stick down, clean up, put on the garment. That's, that is the analogy I think that we should use with regard to apologetics. And, and purgatory is a, is a very much a hot issue. Um, and we, we try to engage in it on Protestant terms. And again, I think we, we need to take the debate back into the castle, back into Catholic norms and say, defend your apostasy. I won't defend my faith. You defend your apostasy. You're the one who departed from truth. You're the one who departed from these settled matters. And even within Catholicism, when you have a doctor of the church speak definitively, such as St. Thomas on purgatory and the machinations of purgatory, this, be, this is settled. When St. Thomas, the preeminent theologian of the church, addresses something squarely without speculation, this, this is settled. This is one of the problems in our society modernly is nothing is settled. And this is one of the banes, if you will, or the, the, the real weaknesses of the modern theological degree. The, the modern theologian has elevated all and is encouraged to elevate all opinions to that of the doctor of a doctor of the church or someone who is, is an author of sacred scripture so that there is no ranking, if you will, there is no true authority, there's no true order. And so with that preamble, let's talk about purgatory from a sense of Catholic doctrine. Prior to the deformation, now many people call that the reformation, but prior to the deformation led by the possessed priest Martin Luther against the Catholic Church, prior to that, the doctrine of purgatory was proclaimed, not defended. And so the language is totally different. If you go back um, pre-1530 and look at the ex not just the explanations, but the development of the understanding and revelation of purgatory, purgative souls, and what it exactly does, then you get a totally different picture than someone trying to, quote, defend it. So Prior, those sources prior to 1530 are the castle sources. Those are the ones where the knight fully armored speaks and says, this is standing on the, the apex of, of the faith. This is doctrine. Post that, what we have is we have churchmen who try to use reason with an unreasonable audience. And, and the reason I say it's unreasonable is when you give up the faculties of intellect and will and you start to diminish the recognition of truth, uh, truth, absolute truth in the intellect, such as Martin Luther did, then what happens is relativism begins to erode and you find yourself defending something, trying to explain, trying to reason with an irrational creature, a creature, a human who has given up the qualities of reason which flow from the intellect. So... If, you, if we look at that, the scriptural foundations of purgatory, and if you, if you can go back and listen to this on podcast, because I'm going to give them quickly, many of you are driving, so um, let your heart not be troubled, this is recorded. 2 Maccabees 12, 41 through 46, 2 Timothy 1, 18, 
the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 12, verse 32. The gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 16, verse 19 through 16, and verse 26. The gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verse 43. Letter to the First letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 11 through 30, and 3... Chapter 3, verse 15, letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 29. And so what the whole premise is, is this, is that purgatory is an active interim state for the dead. St. Thomas speaking. This theme is taken up in a book. This book is the, to my knowledge, is the only book with an imprimatur and was written at the request of um, a Vatican dicastrate. But this book was published in 1951, and it is by uh, author J.P. A-R-E-N-D-Z-E-N, and the title is What Becomes of the Dead? This is the Catholic treatise on the afterlife and the journey of a soul. Previous to this, what we had to draw on from a um, fictional historical scriptural um, mix, if you will, was Dante. And so in Dante, he's in Dante's Divine Comedy, he talks about uh, purgatory. And there's a large part of the book that's given over to purgatory. And for all of Dante's writings, fanciful as they may be, fantastical as they may be, they are um, largely um, in, they are largely consistent with Catholic norms and doctrine and, and teaching. And so what he does is he divides purgatory into seven terraces, if you will, or seven levels. And one ascends out of the depths of purgatory, and the first terrace or the first level that one deals with is pride. And so I would, I would, then he works his way up through envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. And so if you recognize them, what he's done is he is, is uh, categorized the seven capital sins in an inverse ranking, if you will, starting at the bottom with pride and then lust being the last one to be conquered. It's a, it's a literary construct that helps you get your head wrapped around um, the machinations, if you will, of purgatory. Arenzen, in the book, What Becomes of the Dead, systematically goes through the journey of a soul, Catholic teaching, Catholic understanding of it, and what the church has always taught. So this was written largely uh, to address what was coming into the church in the 40s and 50s, which was... Um, the concept of, of reincarnation, which is inconsistent with the Catholic faith, the concept that um, there were damned souls which roamed the earth, which is inconsistent with the Catholic faith, that there were um, souls of the dead which were present to their, their relatives in an active sense, which is inconsistent with Catholic faith. And so he systematically goes through what is the Catholic teaching on the various aspects um, of the dead and what they 
what they are allowed to do and what they are not allowed to do, if you will. But St. Thomas, as well as Arendzin in this book, and others are very, very clear that purgatory is an active interim state. And so I, if, if we are a pilgrim church, meaning a, a transient church, that souls are in transit from and until they re- return to heaven, then you get a clearer picture that purgatory is simply a, a phase in the journey, if you will. It's it's a it's an it's it's um, a necessary stage in the journey. And so one of the the things that Saint Thomas talks about is purgatory exists as a mercy for God, and it is a place which allows the soul to expiate its sins before God, before joining the church triumphant. And so the underpinnings of this, going back to Maccabees and several of these scriptures, is we die, even if we die with a, in a state of grace, we receive last rites, we receive all of these things. There are temporal effects due to sin. There are, there are temporal punishments. There are uh, artifacts, if you will. There are scars. There are things that um, inhibit our perfected desire for union with God. And so there are a few exceptions to, to these statements. But all of them, even the exceptions, fall within the understanding that a soul's desire for God and union with God must be pure and there must be no vestige of inner and or attachment with creature that would inhibit the, the creature's journey to the creator, that there's no temporal effect left. The temporal effects of sin are a series, uh, they're, they're a, an element of justice and this is God's justice, that nothing enters his, his presence, nothing enters his proximity with the least stain of sin. This, we, we find this golden thread, this understanding woven throughout what we know about the Blessed Mother and in fact is operative in uh, one of the Marian dogmas, which is the Immaculate Conception. She would have had to been conceived without original sin without any spot. She would have had to have been conceived immaculately in order to contain within her womb the essence of God, God himself in the form uh, of Christ. And so the, the theological logic, if you will, circles all the way through this and now touches purgatory with the understanding that if we, in fact, are going to be in the presence of God, elevated to the church triumphant, then there has to be a purity. There has to be a glorification. There has to be a purification. And in the same way that fire is used to refine gold as well as to burn away waste, um, the same fire does two things. And so to the soul, the apostate soul, the same fire may well be the torment of hell, but in purgatory, uh, the purgative soul may well be the purification. Uh, the refining, if you will, the burning away of all of that impure desire, all of the temporal effects of sin. So St. Thomas was very clear that in with purgatory, it is an active interim state for the dead during which and at which 
the soul may expiate. An expiation is an act. It's not a desire. It is an act. So you've got a movement of the will. And so what's happening with the purgative soul is there is intellect and will. And the intellect and will is working through the purification process to purify um, its attachment to the earth, to creatures, even to its fleshly or temporal part of itself. It's working through that to purify its desire for union with God. And this is, this is why we talk about the resurrection of the body is the resurrection of the glorified form in the same way that Christ was, was glorified and, and was risen. So it gives us an, 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 an image of purgatory in the tomb. And so it's not that Christ went through purgatory. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the three days in the tomb, he's active. We know he's active. He's not laying um, silent in the tomb. How do we know he's active? It is during this time, especially on Holy Saturday, that he descends into hell and liberates those souls, those patriarchs, those that are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so while his body lay in the tomb, Christ is in uh, about liberation of souls um, out of um, Sheol in, at, in, that, in that action. So the other thing that I would point out is that all the sacred art depictions of the risen Christ are even the Liber Cristo, the liberating Christ at prevailing against the gates of hell and, and leading the saints go marching in to heaven, even that Liber Cristo Christ, which is a very, very important, that risen victorious Christ with the banner uh, of Christendom, it, it's very important to note that he bears not the marks of the scourging. What he bears and what he carries are the, the sacred wounds of sacrifice. The sacred wounds, the five sacred wounds that perfected his sacrifice. And so our glorified bodies will bear the marks of sacrifice, but not the marks of sin. And I think that's one of the things to, to, to be aware of is that our bodies often we carry the marks of our bodies. We scourge our bodies through sin. And so our bodies, our, our temporal selves, bear the marks of our sin in our psychology, in our flesh. And so all of that has to be healed and purified, reconciled with God through that tomb, through that, that, that period, um, that sepulcher experience, if you will. If you apply these principles to purgatory, you see the great mercy that St. Thomas spoke of is a place to do expiation for sin. And St. Thomas was very, very clear that there are no demons in purgatory. There's, there, the demon can't go there because this is the anteroom of heaven. This is the foyer. This is the vestibule of heaven. This is one who is left um, any path to damnation and has vanquished the demon, has vanquished sin to varying degrees, wounded though he may be. And so you look at the victorious gladiator. It's not that he has no mark upon him. He may be, he may be pretty seriously wounded, but he, has, he is victorious. And so St. Thomas was clear that there is no diabolical presence in purgatory, uh, that the demons can't be there. 
The pain that is in purgatory is the pain of separation. It is the acute realization that I've come up short. I'm still on the way. I may still be victorious, but the victory is not fully mine. It's not fully realized. And I think that it's one of the things that we look at, um, and I hate to use it, such a trite example of an inanimate object. But when you set out to do laundry, especially if you did laundry by hand, if you've ever done laundry by hand, there's a violence involved. And so the first time the garment is dunked into the water, this does not make it clean, but it's on its way to cleanliness. It maybe have to dash against the rocks, rubbed against itself, various means of violence uh, and or an astringent soap um, used to, to get the dirt completely out, to get it spotless. And so that's purgatory. And so um, the soul, it's a bittersweet experience knowing that that heaven lay at the end, but it's that pain of separation. And then the suffering, suffering is action. The suffering of the purgative soul is directly applied to the expiation of sin, to the expiation to the justice of God, and it purifies the desire of the soul so that all that it desires is union with God on God's terms, not on its own terms, but on God's terms. And so this is all of those things being washed away and in satisfaction of God's justice. Now, when we talk about justice, it's not that God uh, is a demanding and vengeful God. He's a merciful God. But justice without mercy is cruelty. Mercy without justice is disillusion. They go hand in hand. It's the understanding that to offend God by sin now brings us into a place of their justice, there has to be a just response. And that just response is whatever is necessary to expiate, to address the action of addressing the sin. It's not enough to be repentant or, or to be re regretful. There has to be something done to bring you back into relationship with God. We talk about this in the liberation ministry, and it's very appropriate to purgatory. It's when the Israelis left the Hebrews left Egypt and went into the desert. Listen to their language. Oh, that we were at the flesh pots, the onions, the leeks. This is the language of a purgative soul that is still attached to the, the pleasures of the earth. This is the purgative, this is the language of the purgative soul that's still attached to creature. And so that attachment has to be burned away with the for the, with the desire for union with God has to, to come to the primacy. So when we look at the wandering in the desert, this is, a, this is a purgative experience because it purifies by this desert experience, by this isolation from the leeks and, the, and the, um, all of the flesh pots of, of Egypt, all of the perceived pleasures of Egypt, and they're not remembering the oppression and so this is a, is, a, is a clear illustration of purgatory. And the church fathers, in all of their discussions of purgatory, brought us uh, square back to the desert and the Hebrew experience in the desert of being purified of all of those attachments, even for people, even for, for jobs, for status, to become nothing. 
with God is better to become what men think is something without him. Better to die in obedience than to live in apostasy. And so there was a great movement interiorly in the heart of every Hebrew in the decision to leave Egypt, to leave this place of attachment, of luxury, of known uh, existence, to, to leave that and to venture out into the purgative experience, the purifying experience that is the desert, not knowing how it will be done, where it will be done, what they'll eat, where they'll go. And so within all of that, there is that purification of desire, that purification uh, of the desire for God. So that's a, an overview of purgatory, the principles of purgatory, some sources and some references, and I would be happy to entertain questions and or discussion based upon uh, that little overview. Kyle, walk us through modernly the attachments again. You gave us some examples, being attached to security. Is that what the larger point is with Israel? They wanted the security of being back with back in Egypt rather than be out in the desert with the insecurity. And, and that's, uh, I think that the insecurity is a, is a uh, perception. Yes. Because how can you be more secure than in the will of God? You, you cannot if you're in the if you're in the center of the holy will of God this is the most secure place but it may well be a violent place it may well be a, a place of tumult look at the lives of the blessed mother and of Jesus they are both in the center of the will of God the father yet Mary's life is a life of tumult disruption so her inner peace has to come not from living um, a nice life with St. Joseph in a lovely estate with all the bills paid. Her inner peace comes from being within the will of God. Christ himself, joyous as, he, as his lifeblood pours out on the cross, joy being to be doing that which we were called to do, that we were missioned to do. May not be uh, our, fit our our modern definition of happiness, but joy is to be doing that for which you are created. That's finding that salvific path, that salvific purpose, not just for yourself but for others, to be an instrument of salvation, and that's within God's holy will. He sends us all the way He sent Christ. He sends us all to a time and a place, an ethnicity, a culture, a gender where we will have the most salvific potential if we make sacrifice, if we turn back to him and say, lead me, Lord, through this, this pilgrim existence, and then purify me before I come home. Send me to the battlefield, but clean me up before I come back victorious. That's the imagery of, of purgatory. We, we want to step away from conflict. We want to step away from that which is uncomfortable. We want to step away from that which will clearly mark our path uh, as being one of serving Christ and serving Christ alone. Marianne, do you have a Could question? Could I ask you, Cal? Yes, I do, Angela. You read my mind. Um, Cal, can I ask you about some of the uh, remedies supposedly to alleviate a sentence in purgatory? Now, could you comment on uh, the apostolic pardon? 
what do, yeah. what what does that really send a soul to heaven what is it well i think that it does what, it does what it says it does and so what right. does what it amounts to is it's not an end all it's not an um an answer um to a life to to a um deprived life or a life of perdition um and so what happens is in many cases if you read through all of the apostolic pardon and the the underpinnings of the apostolic pardon the soul the apostolic pardon is given at last rites is it not yes precisely and so it's not given against someone's will. It's not given absent a confession or uh, the attempt of a confession. And so all of the requirements of last rites must be met. And so if the soul does not want to avail itself of God, God does not force the soul into um, his proximity. Understand that the free will of the soul, the free will of the individual is still the primary operative force. God's will may be the most powerful, but God grants the wishes of those who do not want his company. And so, the, uh, many times, apostolic pardon is, um, is misused because the descendant or the, the person that is uh, requesting the apostolic pardon is actually wanting their will or their desire for this soul to be in the proximity of God, is wanting that to be imposed upon the soul who does not have the same wish. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God will honor the desire of the individual soul. And so we can't say, well, um, I know my dad is angry at the Catholic Church and he's lived this life outside the church, but if, um, I want him to have the apostolic pardon. But if he doesn't want it, God's not going to impose your will on somebody else through a rite or a ritual. Kyle, how does that person know what he's accept how does that soul even know or understand what he's accepting and what he's rejecting well again it's it you've got the human limitations and we're open to revelation up until that moment and so there can be this dismiss moment at any time and i i think that that's the that's one of the things that we we should understand is that when i say the dismiss moment dismiss was a good thing who recognized the Christ and, and asked and called upon him as the Lord. Um, and so it, it doesn't mean that Dismas avoided purgatory by any means. The language is very, very clear. Truly, you will be with me in paradise. The, the operative phrase is, Jesus says, truly today, or I say to you today, and so depending upon how the Greek is written, there's no punctuation so that we don't know if he's going to be in paradise today or the promise was made today. It's irrelevant. We get caught up on the time and the time is what we need to set aside and to understand that the apostolic pardon, if once it, it transfers and, and transcends um, death, then time is no longer operative. This is why the, in the Enchidron of Indulgences, the um, assignment of days or years or months in purgatory was done away with simply because it gave us on the temporal side, it gave us on the, the temporal or the time or, or, ordered side of, of death, it gave us a reference point. 
but you can't transfer that. And so the apostolic pardon, um, again, it's it's that promise that this soul is set on this path. Some will be in purgatory till the end of time. Others are released from purgatory every year during this octave of loss of uh, octave octave of holy souls whereby we pray for their release and we're offering our prayers and supplications to add an act, a physical act, to their expiation, to their reparation. I hope that addresses what you're asking. Kyle, how about... Angela, can I ask one question? Oh, of course. Did the Pope, ex- did the Pope extend the eight days to the whole month of November this year? That's what we've been told here. That's correct. That which- that's, that's correct. He has by papal edict, and that is within his uh, that's within his papal authority, scope of authority and power. So, what does that mean, Kyle? Right. For people who don't know what the eight days are. Okay, so traditionally, what happened was there, um, and many people still do this. Monasteries and convents do it, but the lay people used to be involved in this. And you would see, you can remember when you were little girls. Um, I can remember it very well that you there would be um, groups of people praying in the cemetery. There would be rosaries being prayed. It would be to visit a cemetery, to pray for the dead. And so there's a whole list of activities. Um, and I love the language of the Enchiteron. It'll tell you how to earn the indulgences, and then it says usual um, conditions. Usual <laughs> apply, which is to be in a state of grace, to go to confession, to go to Holy Communion. And so it's an active practice of our faith because those holy souls, those purgative souls cannot actively practice their faith. And so it acts as refreshment is what the language has always been, the traditional language has always been. It acts, our machinations act as refreshment to them and helps satisfy the temporal um justice the temporal consequences of their sin because they no longer have a body with which to act we still have flesh with which to act and so that's the whole concept of of the octave of the holy souls and so because of the uh, uh, inaccessibility of mass and and because of uh, pandemic things and, and our human uh, frail response to this um, this has been extended so that one may do these um, various activities for the whole month of November mm-hmm. talk about the usual conditions there's been some discussion about um, with respect to the Pope are you praying for the one of the conditions was is, are you praying for the Pope are you praying for the Pope's intentions are you praying for the Pope's holy intentions well i think that and it's a good question because those those meanings have changed um traditionally and you go back to when um usual conditions apply there were four traditional intentions of the pope and these are the ones there are four traditional uh intentions these are the ones that were covered at the time that that the first in chitaron or codification of indulgences was written the four, those four intentions were, um, and I'll try to remember because I don't recall. Uh, I know that the first one is uh, his health. The second one is his sanctity. The third one is his stalwart defense of the faith. And the fourth one um, escapes me, but it goes along those lines. Uh, but you, you see there, there are intentions for him. 
one that he be healthy um, uh, two that he be holy three that he defend the faith I think maybe from his enemies let him fall not into the hands of his enemies exactly that's the fourth one is protect him from his enemies that's that's precisely right and so these were the four traditional intentions What's happened modernly is the the popes began to publish specific intentions that they had for the month or for the year or for the liturgical season, and then these have been wrongly applied to uh, the usual condition language in uh, indulgences. Wow. Yeah, that changes everything. I know there was some concerns about some of the uh, pronouncements that he's made as far as uh, the most recent one. And so then there was a reluctance of some Catholics to, they didn't want to, pray, <laughs> they didn't want to pray for, pray for that. And so they were, I was well, like, well, how can you not pray for the Pope? Then you're not going to be able to get a plenary indulgence and apply it to someone that you love. Right, and I, I think this is really a good, to- a good topic and question, and one that I think we really need to punctuate because with regard to indulgences, when you see the phrase pray for the Pope's intentions, they're talking about those four traditional intentions that every Catholic had the obligation to pray for the pontiff in those for those four things. And obviously those four things are for the integrity of the office. They're not for the individual um, thoughts or, or, or um, areas of, of uh, emphasis of the individual man. And so they're, they're unique to the office. And they're to pray for his health his sanctity, uh, his stalwart or vigorous defense of the faith, and protection from all his enemies, spiritual and temporal. Talk a little bit about plenary indulgences and what they are and how they are applied, to whom they are applied. And and so here is another modern misinterpretation. Um, If you go back to the traditional, the the modern... um, description on indulgences takes a lot for granted and so we have to go way back to find some definitions and so the partial indulgence is is pretty simple uh is it doesn't it it doesn't expiate the total temporal consequence of a sin and so these add up in devotions and you look at what it takes to get a partial indulgence and you see that what it amounts to is these indulgences um are an accumulation. This is a lot of what we're doing throughout the year. Um, prayers after uh, communion, prayers prior to communion, uh, various devotions and supplications. And so that's pretty clear that these are partial and that, that it's their cumulative effect which has merit. In the plenary indulgence, the big point of contention and the lack of clarity is that many people in term to uh, interpret plenary, meaning in, in the fullness, plenty. Plenty means more than enough. And so the, the plenary indulgence, many people want to apply that to all the sins of the individual. Others, other camps say that a plenary indulgence addresses all of the temporal consequence of one specific sin. This is the more traditional view, is that the plenary indulgence addresses all the temporal consequences of one particular sin. Um, Now, the sin is forgiven, it is absolved, and one is in a state of grace, yet there are still temporal consequences due to sin. 
some of this is addressed through penance others uh, the rest of it is addressed if it's there's still an attachment to that sin that's one of the temporal consequences of sin is to still have an attachment to the behavior or the sin you know you have that if you repeat it and so that's addressed in purgatory if the soul dies in a state of grace but with still this um this predilection, if you will, this this uh, attachment, even though it's not an ongoing sin, even though it's not a, a habitual mortal sin that, that is on the soul at the time of death. And so those are the two camps, and the modern camp says that um, in God's mercy, the language of plenary means all sins, uh, all of the individual sins. The more traditional camp says that um, it is all of the temporal consequence due to a particular instance, a particular sin. And when I say particular, if a, if a man is confessing infidelity, it's not all his infidelities, it's each infidelity. Wow. Uh, stand, stands. And so that's the traditional view of, of the word plenary and the usage of the word plenary. There's not a modern definitive answer to that. But you can see um, both, you, you've got two camps there. Um, one is interpreting it one way, one is, in, is the other. I think that it becomes a matter of semantics. That's never enough. There's never going to be enough. Um, I would hate to think that at particular judgment, I'm looking into the eyes of the Sacred Heart and say, but wait a minute, let me show you my plenary indulgence. Um, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't think the soul wants to find itself in that in that position. What um, we've seen different visualizations of purgatory, Kyle. Some say this in hell that there's a fire. I know there's a purgatory. Is there a purgatory museum? I think I had a book. Yes. Of different. Yes. Talk, talk about what what that experience is believed to be like in purgatory. Well, you've got two basic camps and they're both sensory based uh, or sensory uh, oriented camps uh, or schools of thought on this. Dante envisions hell as a place of intense cold because it's absent of, of light. It's absent of any illumination and so in the very depths of that when he starts uh, the, the journey out of purgatory toward um, heaven it is an ascendancy and so you start at the base of a mountain so it's a pinnacle and there there are terraces that he encounters along the way and so the first is pride and that's in darkness it's the darkness of pride the inability to see in the light and illumination of god and then you work your way up through these various things and as you work your way up out of the pit um heat increases in proximity to the light the ability to see increases, the ability to be aware of one's surroundings and spatial awareness increases in this ascent to heaven up out of the, the darkness uh, and the coldness of hell. And so another sensory, um, very vivid sensory orientation is that um, fire is, um, is the reaction, the, the burning is the reaction to the impure soul um, in the proximity of God and so this is the, the concept of refining by fire and so that's another visual that's given or a sensory um, way that purgatory is described and so the desire for heat or the desire for warmth the desire for um, illumination 
draws us up out of the darkness of isolation where we place the emphasis on creature. That's Dante's reference. In many of the other uh, references, it is the fires of hell um, and, and the image of Gehenna, the smoldering um, ash heap um, of the refuse, of, of the uh, of trash, if you will, of dross, of those things that are, are any impurities. That's another visual. And so I don't think that you can say one got it right and one got it wrong. I think that whatever appeals to your sensory perception, we've got people who, who uh, prefer the cold, we've got people who prefer the heat. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the message of Fatima said, save us from the fires of hell. Or was that prayer developed at Fatima? Oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Was that given at Fatima? It was. It was. And and the fires of hell, what you're talking about there is is the fires of torment or the the tormenting sensation. And they can, it's very hard to imagine a more tormenting, um, sensation than the fire that's never quenched than than the fire that never dies that that the worm that never dies that that attacks the flesh uh and never ceases um it's, so it's really hard to to escape that imagery yeah talk about last rites kyle so if i have last rites do i go right to heaven well, again, when you're saying right to heaven, you're, you're using right in two ways. There's two spellings, R-I-T-E and R-I-G-H-T. I like the R-I-G-H-T, Kyle. I just want to go like express. I don't mean to joke about it, but I mean, they say, oh, well, she had last fight, so she's in heaven now. We can't say that. We can't begin to say that. And I think I think that what we can say with all surety is that she received last rites, therefore she visits particular judgment. Um, because particular judgment is not guaranteed. Uh, if the soul does not want to have anything to do with the Lord, the Lord does not impose himself upon that soul. Um, so while it's possible to go straight to hell, it's not so possible to go straight to heaven. One may go through the interim, the vestibule, the foyer, the anteroom, which is purgatory. But the Catholic soul goes to particular judgment. The baptized soul gets a hearing. It goes to particular judgment. St. Athanasius says that at that point we will give an account of our life. There's no way to escape or go around that giving an account to our Lord, that eye-to-eye, face-to-face contact with the Sacred Heart and, and give to Him an account for what we did and what we did not do. No one gets around that. No one shortcuts particular judgment, the sorting of the sheep from the goats. And so when you say go right to heaven, I'm seeing his right hand. It's always been important to me to, to orient myself in the church on the right, on, to his right hand and visualize throughout the mass looking at the crucifix. I want to be on that right hand. I want to go to that right side. I want that head nodded to the right for me, not that head nodded to the left, which is the way of perdition. And so that imagery, that spatial imagery is there. It's what are we, you know, what is the imagery that we die with? Are our loved ones praying the Hail Mary, the divine mercy, are they beating back the forces of the devil who is going to want to be there at the moment of death. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And so it's at the hour of the death when despair is is just right there on the margin of life 
that we have to to desire God with the purest intent to gain particular judgment. None of us are going to get a pass. None of us are going to go around particular judgment. And so what last rites does is it's a it's a remembrance and it is a remarking of that indelible mark of baptism, that anointing that says this person desires to be with Christ. This person desires union with God. And I mark this person, priest speaking, I mark this person so that in the journey to the afterlife, he's identifiable on the other side. Um, this is the equivalent of a spiritual dog tag, if you will. So there's casualties on the battlefield. How do we know what side they're on? Um, if they're not wearing the uniform, if their bodies are stripped, there's got to be some way to identify. Um, and so that indelible mark that marks that that is re-emphasized and it's remade uh, as part of last rites, as well as confession. It's the desire to to have union with God. And so if you've had the opportunity to be around a holy person who's preparing for death, it's a, it is a beautiful, beautiful sight is that soul actually begins to strip away any remaining attachments to earthly things, any remaining attachments. It wants to have no debts unpaid, meaning no spiritual debts. It wants to have no nothing, nothing that attaches it um, to the to creature, no unforgiveness, um, none of that. And so to, to have the luxury of a lingering illness whereby one can suffer in their body in expiation for their sins, we used to see that as a great mercy as Catholics. Now we're so adverse to suffering, we want them to die in their sleep and go straight to heaven. It just doesn't happen. How, what's the role of the funeral? And uh, modernly, a lot of um, people are just kind of bypassing a funeral for their loved ones. They, they don't understand why they need to do it. So in, in traditional Catholic understanding is there is, imagine this, there's three days for the soul to fully separate from the body. And so death is, is the definition of death is the separation of the soul from the body. And what we've done is we've gone to a medical definition of death instead of a theological definition of death. So medically, the cessation of respiration or the cessation of brain activity, so there's either brain death or biological death or, or respiration ceasing. Those are the two declarations of death that we have modernly and medically, and neither one of those are theologically correct. The soul is not in the brain, um, very simply. So brain death or the fact that the body is, this is why there's, there is really complete teaching on the ethics uh, of death. But what happened traditionally was the funeral mass was the third day after death, and there was vigils prayed to comfort the soul, which was in the process of separating from the body. Vigils and prayers were prayed. Uh, the office of the dead was prayed. We began the novena for the holy soul. We began all these things, and at the funeral mass, when at the end of the funeral mass, when the coffin was incensed, this was so that the soul may understand and take leave that it is now time to ascend to heaven, to ride the incense and the prayers of the congregation at the Mass and to ascend uh, to judgment, ascend to particular judgment, to leave this place because this body is now separate from this olam, from this soul. And so it was actually a process. And if you read the Office of the Dead, 
in the in the traditional literature, you see that this was a very understood and detailed process. And at three days, at the end of the three days, there was um, corruption begins. And so then it, it's very evident that the soul has left the body because the soul cannot be in that place of corruption. Um, the Holy Spirit cannot be in that place of corruption, in that rotting body, in that rotting flesh. And so this was a very developed theology. It was understood. It was settled. But again, Protestant influences and other influences came in. We began to defend our faith rather than proclaim it. This is a good place to end. Uh, this is the end of our time, I believe. It is. Kyle, can we close with the prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord God Almighty, creator of us all. We ask that we be particularly mindful of those souls who will come to the earth today and those souls who will leave the earth today. We ask your mercy on them, both those who come and those who go, and may we always be mindful of our soul and the souls of others. May we always look with the eyes of Christ and see others as he sees them. Amen. May we love them as you love them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Kyle, God bless you. listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.